Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church and our midweek service as we look through another portion of uh, <clears throat> the Psalms. And I want to thank you for your prayers and uh, everything that's been going on. I did go to the heart failure team at Baptist Hospital yesterday and spent a lot of time uh, with them and uh, appreciate your uh, prayers on all of that. It's a little worse than um, I initially thought or understood, but uh, we're on the right track and uh, we're uh, handling everything. And so uh, uh, thank you very much for your prayers and for your support. We have been um, talking about what to do when life goes off script. And um, whenever you think about that, think about what David wrote and think about how he was getting advice, getting advice from people who uh, meant well <clears throat> and who may have been from a human standpoint, they may have been right. It may not have been that they were just trying to deceive him. In fact, I don't think they were at all. I think these were friendly people who wanted to give David uh, every advantage that they possibly could. And so, fly away like a bird, they said. You can go back and read the first part of the psalm. Um, that question, what can the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? That, I think, you may have a difference of opinion, but I think that's a legitimate question. What are you going to do? How do you repair when the foundation is messed up? How is it that you have anything strong, anything that is stable, when the foundation is torn up? Well, you can't. And so the idea, it seems to me, was they were telling David, it's over. There's not really anything you can do. Even as the great king of Israel, as the giant killer, the anointed one. There's not really anything that uh, you can do about all of this. Have you ever felt like that? Um, I know with what I'm going through, I've felt a little bit of that. Like, where did this come from? Why did this happen? And um, I'm thinking about some of the people in our church and what they're going through. We've got some people with some family situations. They never saw it coming. They never thought that uh, when they first got married and they first started having those little sweet babies, they never thought that now they would be where they are. I know of some people in our church that, uh, well, just today, uh, Danny Hudler found out he's got cancer in his mouth. That's not something that you uh, <clears throat> write out and script and say, oh, when I'm X number of decades old, I'll do this and this and this. You don't do that. I think about Susan Hall and her battle with cancer and uh, how many other people have had things just kind of hit them out of the blue. And I had an uncle that would say it hit me in the side of the face like a piece of raw liver. And uh, sometimes life is like that, isn't it? Pardon my voice, I'm still trying to get everything back. 
And I do appreciate Isaac preaching, uh, not only Sunday, but last Wednesday, he took that on very, very quickly. And I appreciate that. But um, we're kind of getting all of this back. My breathing is a whole lot better right now. So I am thankful for that. So I'll try to um, keep it down just a little bit so it's not quite as annoying. But all of this kind of stuff is what David was going through. And all of the advice that he was getting was, well, exactly the wrong advice for a man of God. And so as we think about these next set of verses, go with me to, again, Psalm 11. And um, we'll look at verses just four and five. Okay, this may not be terribly long. Um, that'll be okay. Now listen to what David says after the, um, the question about what are the righteous going to do if the foundation is destroyed. Now here's David's response. The Lord is in his holy temple. You know, uh, it appears to me that he may not have needed to say anything else. Fly away like a bird. The wicked are out there. It's all they could see was the wicked. They've got their bows and the arrows are in the strings. They're going to shoot from the shadows. Arrows are going to come from places you didn't anticipate. And so <clears throat> the whole idea there is we can see the enemy, but we can't see God. Now, child of God, if you're living your life to where you are aware of the enemy and you can see the enemy, you can sense the enemy, you can feel the presence of the enemy, that's not necessarily a bad thing. The enemy is real. Demons are real. But here's the thing that I want you to see. If you can see that when you can't see God, something's desperately wrong with your soul. When you can sense the work of the enemy and you respect the work of the enemy and you're maybe even afraid of the work of the enemy and you want to counter the work of the enemy, but you're not sensing the Holy Spirit, you're not sensing the power and the presence and the sovereignty of God. When you've gotten to the place to where you almost, I know you don't, but you almost act like the devil is more sovereign than God. And the only hope you have is for you to intervene so God can get his will done. Boy, that is so wrong and so backwards and so troubling. We ought to have our eyes, what does the Bible say? Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Faith. And looking unto him, we are to run the race with endurance and we're to lay aside every sin and every weight that doth so easily beset us. There are just certain things that you carry and that I carry that are kind of, uh, how shall we say this, genetic. There are things that you battle and things that I battle that our parents battled and our grandparents battled and our great-grandparents battled 
And it's just kind of a, a family thing that hits us. And it's a little bit different for each of us. Sometimes they're similar, but other times they're just, they're just different. And they hit us out of the blue, the unscripted life. And um, we look at all of this and wonder, how in the world can I make it? How can I go on? And it's at that time that the demons of hell will make themselves look bigger and badder and trickier and more powerful than ever before. And if that's where you're looking, then that's where your defeat is going to be, you see? And what the Bible calls us to do is to gaze upon our Lord and to gaze upon Jesus. Now that's what David is doing when he is told, what can the righteous do? And then David, it's as if he goes, shh, the Lord is in his holy temple. You know what he's saying? You're seeing everything but the right person. You're seeing everything but the right being. You're seeing everything but God. You know, I wonder what's wrong with us sometimes when we're looking for everything but the one who can redeem us, for everyone but the one who has all power and all knowledge. David says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold and his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests or better examines the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Does that bother you? I remember growing up and hearing an evangelist preach a whole message on 10 things the Lord can't do. I look at that now and that seems like a very strange title for a sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing God. And he had this list of things God can't do. And one of them was God can't hate. Huh. That seems like Psalm 11 then shouldn't be in the Bible. That sounds like some other verses shouldn't be in the Bible. Obviously, the Lord does hate. Now, he hates in a different way than we do, and he hates with a perfect hatred. But David is very clear here that uh, the Lord does have a righteous hatred. And he has that because of his great love for his people, for you and me. And it's kind of a comparative term. The Lord's love for us is so strong, so powerful. The Lord's love for us is so intense and unending that it makes it look like he just doesn't care for anybody else. And the idea of thinking that God loves everybody the same is foreign to scripture as well. You remember that passage in the book of Hebrews about discipline? For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. You remember it also says, if you are not disciplined by the Lord, then you're an illegitimate uh, child. Your claim to be a follower of Christ and a child of God is an illegitimate claim. 
Why? Because the Lord disciplines those that he loves. See, when you uh, think about all of that, think about how wonderful it is, how precious it is, and how unlikely it is. Let's not leave that out. How gracious it is that the Lord would love people like you and people like me. When the Bible in Romans chapter 9 says, for example, quoting the Old Testament, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. People get all hung up on how could a loving God hate Esau? Well, here's a better question. How could a holy God love Jacob? Jacob was a skunk. Jacob was a liar, a deceiver. Remember all of that? And yet the Lord set his affection on him just as he does us. And so the question is not how could he hate anybody? The real question is how could he ever love us as a holy God? And that is an amazing thing to stop and to consider. That'd be a good place for a sailor, wouldn't it? Just stop and think about that. Well, I was thinking when you are living a life and all of a sudden the bend in the road takes you where you never intended to be. It's not because of your sin. Sometimes. Sometimes it is. You know, the old saying, sin will take you further than you ever intended to go and cost you more than you wanted to pay and keep you more uh, longer than you ever intended to stay. Now that is certainly true. And David in other Psalms could certainly testify of that. Sin, somebody said, thrills and then it kills. It fascinates and then it assassinates. Well, that's just kind of a clever way of, of just saying the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundant. And we miss out on the abundant life because of sin. And all sin is a lack of faith. You see, the Bible says in Ephesians 6, God has given us the uh, belt of truth. That's non-hypocrisy. We're committed to the battle. He has also given us a breastplate of righteousness. And through the death of Christ and through uh, faith in him, we're given the righteousness of Christ to our account. Now we are to live that righteousness. Imputed righteousness puts that on the books. That's permanent. Imparted righteousness means that every day I'm to put on the breastplate of righteousness so that my heart is guarded and my abdomen is guarded. The heart is the soul and the thinking that we have. The abdomen, according to the Jews, would be our feelings. And so our thoughts and our feelings are guarded by the righteousness of God, by us making wise, godly, biblical, holy decisions about our life. He's also given us the shoes of the preparation or the readiness of the gospel of peace. And that means that we stand firm, always ready, always ready to fight the battles to stand against the enemy with a firm footing because we're ready. And we're ready because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have 
the resources of the Lord now because through the gospel, we've trusted in him and he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And so we dig in and we stand firm. We also, you remember, have the sword of the spirit and that's the word of God. And it's amazing how many people try to fight the enemy without the word of God. They try to fight according to something that they think, something that they have conceptualized, something that someone else taught them that is nowhere found in scripture. Don't do that. Learn the word of God and apply the word of God, the doctrinal truths of the word, the promises of the word, the principles of the word, the precepts of the word, whatever. Just start using the word of God. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, right? And we have a helmet. And the helmet is the helmet of salvation. And Paul in Ephesians 6 is not saying, you know, put on this and this and this and this and, oh, by the way, get saved. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he called the helmet the hope of salvation. What is hope? Crossing your fingers, I sure hope I'm saved. Actually, the hope of salvation is because we know the word of God and we know the gospel, we have hope or confident assurance that everything's going to work out because God is our redeemer. He has saved us. He is saving us and he will save us. Justification, sanctification and glorification. And our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so I have salvation on as a helmet that protects me from the devil's swords. The devil's sword has two edges too, doubt and discouragement. And the helmet of the hope of salvation keeps me from falling prey to that. It protects me. But there's one more thing, isn't there? And this is what I was getting to, the shield of faith that quenches the fiery darts of the wicked one. And basically it boils down to this. And David would understand this. And I want you to understand it. Every time we are tempted to sin, there's a choice. And the choice is going to be, do we believe the demons of hell that dropped the bait? Or do we believe God who always tells the truth and the God who loves us and wants to lead us in victory in every situation, every time. Now, David had a choice here when these counselors were telling him, well, what can the righteous do? It's over, it's hopeless. Well, David knew he had promises. David knew he had power. This is, after all, the grown-up version of the giant killer. This is the man who stood where the armies of Israel were terrified. And he said, you come against me, speaking to Goliath, with a spear and a sword. And it's as if he said, I can trump that. I come before you in the name of the Lord. And so David understood that at this situation, he can either believe his well-meaning but wrong counselors and advisors, or he can believe God. God had given David promises Think about the Davidic covenant. Someone is going to sit on the throne of Israel from your dynasty, God said. And they're going to sit there 
and rule and reign forever. And it's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? David's greater son. And so David is telling us here, when he writes these words, the Lord is in his holy temple. You know what he's saying? Thank you for your advice, but I choose to believe God. Thank you for the way you want to help. Thank you for all of the way you mean so well. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your affection. Thank you for all of that, but no thank you. I'm going to believe God. So what do you do when life is unscripted, when life goes off the script? Well, number one, the Lord's sovereignty is not shaken. He is in his holy temple. Now, folks, that doesn't mean God is way off. God is unaware. God doesn't care. God has to be summoned. God has to be informed. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that when you have an all-powerful, all-knowing God, you also have to remember you have an omnipresent God, a God who is always with us. And a God who is with us, who is omnipresent, can also be in heaven at the same time. Did you get that? The Bible talks in the book of Hebrews that we have an anchor. And the anchor is going up within the veil. What's, what's the veil? You know, that old hymn says, my anchor holds within the veil on Christ, the solid rock I stand. What's this stuff about veils and anchors? Well, if you think about the Old Testament temple and you think about the Holy of Holies, the high priest would go behind the veil. And behind the veil was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was that mercy seat where the high priest would sprinkle blood to atone for the sins of Israel for another year. And the writer of Hebrews reminded us that Christ went into the real Holy of Holies, not the one on earth, the one in heaven. And he put his own blood, not the blood of a goat, not the blood of a lamb or anything like that, his own precious blood on the mercy seat, a one-time offering, and that one-time offering secures us forever and ever and ever. And the writer of Hebrews says that what Christ did is like a rock that we're anchored to. And that anchor holds us secure. It's an immovable thing, except that on a ship, an anchor goes down and hooks onto a rock. For the child of God, our anchor goes up and it's behind the veil and it's anchored into the rock of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. He was speaking of himself and speaking of his gospel and speaking of his triumph and speaking of his sacrifice. And one of the things that we need to do that David does is to understand that when our life seems to fall apart, when it seems to derail, it does absolutely nothing to the sovereignty of God. He's sitting in his temple. He deserves our worship. He is the one who is sovereign over all of the universe. The Lord 
is in his holy temple, his sovereignty is not shaken. He led you through this for a purpose. He led you to it for a purpose. And he's walking with you and ruling over you and worship him and praise him, whether you feel like it or not. Worship and praise him. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. He didn't ask you to feel thankful. He asked you to give thanks. Secondly, notice that David reminds us that the Lord is not unaware. It says that his throne is in heaven. That's a good place to see everything that goes on, on earth, in heaven, even in hell. The Lord sees it and he sees it all. His eyes behold. I have no idea what it means that his eyelids test the sons of men other than that it is a way of saying he's got his eyes on you. He's watching you. Nothing escapes him. There's nothing that he has to say, what, when did that happen? Oops, or anything like that. Heard a comedian say one time, words you don't ever want to hear a surgeon say. Oops. Well, let me tell you, it'd be even worse if you were to hear out of heaven, oops, and it'll never happen. There's nothing that escapes the Lord, his scrutiny. Even the darkness, the Bible says, is light to him. And so as the Lord is watching, you don't have to go into your prayer and tell God everything. I understand people when they say, give me more information. I want to pray specifically. That, that's fine. Unless what that person is saying is, if I don't tell God exactly what he needs to do, he's not going to know what to do. That's just borderline blasphemy. Whenever somebody says that with the idea that, well, I don't want God to miss anything. If I don't pray it right, he might miss something. That's borderline blasphemy. This is an all-knowing God that we have. He knows our needs before we even ask. He knew this situation before we ever informed him. Let us never go before God as if he's distant, as if he is ignorant, and as if we had the answers and we are what he needs to get this situation fixed. Because David said not only is the sovereignty of God intact, but also the Lord is fully aware. He's not unaware is the way we've written it down, but he is fully aware of everything that is going on, of every need, of every situation. And he even knows exactly what he is going to do. We need to rest in him. Now, thirdly, notice that the Lord has bigger plans than just punishment. You know, some people think all the Lord does is throw down lightning bolts, send down uh, fire and brimstone. And some people, the only reason they want to go to heaven is because it seems less painful than hell. Well, I assure you that it is. But they don't really see heaven as a great, wonderful, beautiful, loving, joyous, exciting place that God has prepared for us. They just kind of go, well, it sounds boring, but it's better than hell. Because in their minds, the only thing God is good at is punishment. And they read about Sodom and Gomorrah, and they say, see? And they read about hell with worms that don't die and 
flames that are not quenched and they go, see? Well, the Lord has a whole lot more in store than just punishment or the avoidance of it. It says that he tests or examines the righteous. Now, why would he want to do that? And what I, why would I want him to do that for me? Well, let's put it this way. The more sin I can get out of my life, the more of the joy of the Lord, my strength that I'm going to have. So if the Lord examines my life and he battles, fights, and gets rid of sin in my life, that'd be a good thing. It means less people misunderstand, less people get hurt, less consequences, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, it's a, it's a good thing. But you know, he also wants to reward you. The Bible teaches that all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, when the lost are called up, they're going to stand and hear words of condemnation. Depart from me. I never knew you, workers of iniquity or lawless ones, depending on where you read. And they're going to be put in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. But for those of us who are saved, we're going to stand before what is called the Bema, B-E-M-A, the Bema seat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, where our lives are going to be evaluated. Paul said, it's like putting something through fire. And if it's wood, hay, and stubble, in other words, built on selfishness, self-interest, uh, disinterest in the Lord, then it's going to burn up like wood, hay, and stubble, no matter what it is. But if it's built on the glory of Christ, in the power and the strength of Christ working through us, because you and I can do nothing, he does everything. When I'm yielded to him, like now, teaching in this situation, then that means I'll be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, if I'm teaching now and it's wood, hay, and stubble, then this lesson, however good it may be, I think it's a pretty good one, will burn up though, see? We're going to be evaluated so that we can receive rewards to lay at the feet of Jesus. So the Lord has a bigger plan than punishment. So here he is seated in his holy temple. His sovereignty is intact while our life is kind of going off script. When we think about him, he is completely aware of where we are. Even if we're making mistakes, he's going to work all of that together for good because he loves us and we're the called according to his purpose. He's going to change those into lessons that are going to make us stronger and better and wiser and more mature. And he is doing this because God doesn't specialize only in punishment. He's good at it, but he wants to reward the righteous. So he keeps his eye on us to see how we respond. Of course, he already knows to bad advice, to life taking a bad term. And this is David saying, I know one thing, the Lord's got his eye on me. I didn't see this coming, but the Lord did. So I'm going to trust him. There's a song I used to sing that uh, says, talks about the problems in life and our preconceived ideas falling apart. And then this song says, so I'll praise him, raise him high within my heart. I'll just trust him now as I trusted at the start. Well, that's good advice, which brings us in then to the uh, fourth point and 
it says that the fate of the wicked is unimaginable. But the wicked and the one who does violence, his soul hates. I am so glad that because of Christ, I don't have to be the object of his wrath. I'm the object of his love. I'm the object of his mercy. I'm the object, object of his grace. And I don't deserve any of those and neither do you. When I think about how terrible it must be to hear the Son of God say, depart from me, I never knew you, into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I cannot even imagine the terror, the horror, the despair, the fear. You don't talk about weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. I think it starts there, and I think it's involuntary. I don't think the human has the capacity to stand up to the judgment and the wrath of God. And so, as we conclude this, think about that. And think about people that do you wrong. Think about the people that do the Lord wrong. Think about the rebels. Think about all of those things that David must have been facing. And think about the fact that you are under his love. You are under his grace because God loved you and sent his son to die for you, to bear his wrath on the cross of Calvary in your place so that a risen, resurrected Christ could put his blood on the mercy seat in heaven for you and redeem you and make you what you could never make of yourself. Now he lives in you and now he lives through you. And he's not just your last resort, he's your first resource because he knows exactly where you are, exactly what you're going through and exactly why you're going through it so that he can make something beautiful out of you, blessing you and rewarding you for his glory. And so with that, I just say, may the Lord bless you. Thank you for tuning in. Continue to pray for me and continue to pray for one another and minister in any way that uh, you can. And may, as you do that, the Lord fill you with joy and hope as you walk with him and as you continue to trust him. And when life throws you a curve, hit it out of the park in the strength of the Lord. And when you find yourself bewildered, look up and see that the Lord is still on his throne. He's still sovereign. He still deserves your worship and your praise. And you'll find the peace of the Lord that passes all understanding. Thank you again, and God bless you.